0: begin by reading from God's word in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 1 through 23. God's word says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you should not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have not made use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of the ground for boasting. For, I preach, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground of boasting, for, necess, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel? For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Lord, would you use your word even now to speak to us, to exhort us, encourage us, and ultimately see you that we might be your representatives, your ambassadors faithfully here. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. As Americans, we are passionate about freedoms and rights. We are entailed with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In our founding documents, we have the Bill of Rights. You know, we're stirred when we hear Patrick Henry's statement, give me liberty or give me death. In our Declaration of Independence are these well-known words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed with by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And we feel right that they said that. Rights. We love them. This isn't really just an American idea to love freedom. This is one of the reasons Jesus came. When Jesus began his ministry, he went to the synagogue in Nazareth, and he read from Isaiah's scroll. In Isaiah 61, which he read for, it says, The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So twice in Jesus telling why he came, he said, I came to give liberty. I came to give you freedom. Paul even summarized Christ's calling in Galatians 5.13. He says, for you were called for freedom. Then he goes on, only do not use your freedom for an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Christ has freed us. He freed us from the power of sin's enslavement. He has freed us from the penalty of sin and the punishment we deserved and one day when we are reunited with the lord we'll be freed from the presence of sin. And yet sadly, as Christians sometimes we use our freedoms in such a way that harm other Christians. And that's what Paul is writing about in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 because they had freedoms and they on the basis of those freedoms were saying, "I can do this." And yet they were harming other Christians. The issue specifically was meat sacrificed to idols and we began to look at this last week and we said really as you understand this you have to understand there's three levels of christian truths the first level are essentials that you have to believe to be a christian like that jesus is the son of god or that we're saved by grace alone or that god is trinity you have to stand those are essentials but then there's secondary levels secondary issues that are important we need to talk about them and believe them but They vary from church to church. What kind of church leadership do we have? Who is allowed to be baptized, and how do we baptize them? And other questions like that, which we as a church have clear beliefs, but there's other churches in town and around the globe where we say, yes, they're Christians, but we don't agree on these secondary issues. But then there's third-level issues, what Paul is talking about here, and these are matters of conscience. Should you private school school? homeschool, or public school. Well, hopefully we'd all agree there's good reasons for each of those, but you're free and you're not sinning based on which one of those you choose. We should all be generous to the poor and we should all take care of ourselves. So does that dictate what size house we should have or what neighborhood we should live in? No, we're free to say, this is the home I want to live in. And we can't bind each other's consciences saying a Christian would never buy a house that's that expensive. That's sinful. No, there's freedom In the Lord on some issues. And here, Paul is going into this. There's freedom in the Lord to eat this meat sacrificed to idols. But as we saw last week, just having freedom, just having knowledge is not all you need to know. Because he then said, what matters more is love. He said, look, you should realize this meat sacrificed to idols, idols aren't real, so you can eat it. But don't just say that, also say, what's loving to my brother and sister in Christ. And if it's going to lead them to sin, Paul declared at the end of chapter 8 that he would never eat meat again. Now Paul in this chapter is going to show them, look, I'm not just telling you all how to live. I'm going to show you that I'm doing the exact same thing that I'm calling you to do. And I'm going to give you an example from my life. And then in chapter 10, he's going to wrap it up with the famous statement, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, And eats, referring there to like meat, eating, eat, meat, sacrifice, idols, or whether you don't, do it all for the glory of God. But in this chapter, Paul basically has two major things he's trying to get across. If you have a bulletin, you can see this short outline on the back. The first in verses 1 through 18 is that we should be willing to lay down our rights for the gospel. Lay down our rights for the gospel, verses 1 through 18. And then verses 19 through 23 We should even be willing to enslave ourselves for the gospel. But first, verses 1 through 18, Paul is showing that just as he called them to give up their rights, he gave up his rights. Well, how? Well, he's going to walk through this, and he begins asking them rhetorical questions, a question that you don't expect to get an answer back. He asks them, four, am I free? Am I an apostle? Have I seen Jesus? Are you my workmanship? And the clear answer to all of those is yes. All of those are true. And then Paul asked them questions about his role as an apostle in verse 2 because there were Christians in Corinth who were beginning to undermine Paul's apostleship and say, well, he's not really an apostle, and he's having to defend himself. And one of the ways they attacked him was that unlike other public speakers of the day, other um, ministers of other religions who were paid, Paul worked and he was a tent maker and in their eyes this was demeaning paul was not someone worthy of respect because he worked with his hands he wasn't like these famous orators who could just charge for going around and paul saying look i didn't give up the right to work because i'm not an apostle look weren't you saved through me are you not my workmanship and he's going to go through all these reasons why he gave him gave up this right You know, by my count, he asked them 17 questions in 14 verses about whether he has this right. An avalanche of questions. And he begins in verses 4 through 7 saying, look, don't I have the right to eat and drink? When Jesus sent out the 72 men on the mission in Luke chapter 10, he told them, whatever house you enter, there you shall eat and drink. And Paul's basically saying, shouldn't I have that same right? Along with food, verse 5, shouldn't he be allowed to get married like other apostles? Even Jesus' own brothers got married. Even Peter's married. Shouldn't I have this right? Verse 6, he says, doesn't he have the right not to work outside of being an apostle? And then he points to kind of some secular things. Does a soldier work as a soldier and then have to go work at night to make money? Or does he get paid for being a soldier? Or does a gardener have to do extra? No, he gets rewards from gardening. Or the farmer, they get all get their rewards. So shouldn't he get monetary rewards for working as a gospel worker? And then he says, not only am I going to talk about these kind of earthly arguments, but let me turn to Scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, and verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 9. He says, do not muzzle the ox while it's threshing. Now, I don't think many of us are threshers anymore, probably aren't buying wheat and grinding it ourselves, some people still do, but threshing is when they would pull the wheat or whatever grain, and then you would need to get the husk off the seed, so you could have the seed from which you could make a flower, and the ox would drive a, some type of tool over it back and forth, I'm not a thresher, other I would know that word, and then you could have the seed to grind. And Paul's saying, look, as the ox is doing all this work, as it's grinding it up, isn't it fair as he bends over his head and licks them up to not whip them and go, no, you can't do that. That's for us. Nope. He's doing all the work. Let him bend his head every once in a while and lick a little and keep going. That's, that's just fair to the ox. But then he says, well, look, think about this. If God gives rules for animals because God cares about animals, doesn't he care more about the beings he made in his own image? Doesn't he care even more about those for whom he sent his son to die? And the implication is, of course, yes. So thus, they should be rewarded. He goes on, verse 11, he says, If they've sowed spiritual things, is it too much to ask for a physical reward? And again, it's clearly, no, it's not too much to ask for that. And again, verse 12, he points out, These other Christian leaders who've gotten a reward, shouldn't they? But Paul has worked as a tent maker because he didn't want to have any hindrances for the gospel. He wanted to do everything so there was no obstacle, he says at the end of verse 12, in the way of the gospel of Christ. And then he turns and he talks about religious workers, both Jewish and pagan. He says, look, people who are at altars, at sacrifices, they get rewarded. So Paul has given five big arguments. He said, look. Compare me with soldiers, gardeners, farmers. They get rewarded, shouldn't I? Second, there's the law of Moses. Oxen get to eat what they're doing, shouldn't I? Third, he compares with basic ideas of justice. Fourth, there's this comparison to other religious workers. And then he kind of wraps it up in verse 14, his fifth argument, that the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Paul has given all these arguments. He's put all these verses, so we're ready. He's going to lay out my 401k needs to have this much. I need this dental plan, this medical plan, and I need this much in my salary. But notice what he says next in verse 15. He says, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision now. So wait, hold on. You just took all this time arguing. You gave 17 questions. You gave all these reasons, all this logic, and then you go, Pfft, I didn't even really want it anyways. I mean, is this like that person who's annoying, who keeps saying, hey, can we go to this restaurant? Can we go? And finally, look, we'll go. And they go, I didn't want to. And you want to punch him. You're like, what are you? Ah, you just drove me crazy, and I finally give in, and you say you don't want it? Well, Paul's not trying to be annoying. He's not trying to be a nag. Rather, he's. He's trying to show them, look, as a Christian, the fact that you have a right to something doesn't mean you should use it. You can give up that right. You know, we are people of the cross. We are the people that know it is better to deny yourself. It's better to serve than to be served. We know it's better to give our life than to serve ourselves. And so Paul is trying to say, look, I'm not just giving you theoretical arguments. Y'all should go live this way, but uh, y'all should reward me and let me live a really great life. He's saying, I live this way. This is how you should live. D.A. Carson writes, the fact of the matter is that Paul's example extends far beyond the issue of meat offered to idols. It has become his lifestyle. It is the working out in one extraordinary life of what it means to take up your cross And follow Jesus. We must not stand on our rights. As long as defending our rights remains the guiding star that orders our priorities, we cannot follow the way of the cross. Now to be clear, Paul is not saying you can never argue for rights or use rights. In fact, in the book of Acts, when he's on trial, he appeals to the fact that he has rights as a Roman citizen. As well as the church of Philippi sent Paul money and he didn't send it back saying, no, I never take money. Rather, he is considering in what way, whether I use my rights or I give them up, can I serve Christ and love other people? You know, Paul not only uses his words here to share the gospel, he's saying my life is going to be an example to you around me of what it looks like to know the gospel. You know, for Paul it freed him so much that he could say, I give up this right to take pay from you. And so then we have to ask ourselves, what rights might we give up to those around us so they can stand in awe of the gospel? And you know, I think we have to ask as a culture, American culture, that is always screaming for our rights, how are we ever going to help them understand a Savior who gave up his rights? A good friend of mine told me of being in a church church, And the church was centrally located in the community, and they were very zealous for evangelism. They would have literally hundreds of children at their VBS, and they would get baptisms all the time. Yet there was a problem with many of their decisions and much of their evangelism. It was a style that had you make a decision for Christ, but never called you to deny yourself, never called you to submit to Christ. You know, it called for a rejection of certain external sins, maybe like alcohol or other visible sins, but it never called for a transformed life in submission to Christ. Thus, though as well intentioned evangelism, it created something quite ugly. You know, it created a group of people that were rather smug because they're eternally secure with God, but they'd never been changed at the heart level. And thus, my friend told me that though they had lots of numbers, her daughter who worked at a restaurant one street over said, we always hate Sunday afternoon. Because on Sunday afternoon, the people from your church come, and they are always the most rude. They always tip the least, and they always get most upset if they don't get the food the way they ordered it. So they were great, wonderful church. We're doing all this work. And yet their lifestyle didn't show anything about the gospel. You know, what about you? How do you respond when though you clearly told the waitress, no mustard, it's smothered all over? What do you do when you take your car to the mechanic and you get it back and they go, oh yeah, we fixed it. And you're not even a block away and you can tell it's worse than when you turned it in. How do you respond when you go to the doctor's office and you're the one who shows up early And all the other people show up late. And 30 minutes later, you're still sitting there and they've all been called back. Now, I'm not saying we should be fine with not getting what we ordered. I'm not saying you shouldn't talk to them if they didn't do what you paid them to do. The question is, how do we respond to those things? Do we harass them? Can they notice any difference in the way that we seek to get our rights than others? Or are we just as harsh? and ugly as everyone else. And when you finish getting what you paid for, which again is not a bad thing, would you then be able to tell them of a Savior who gave up his rights so that you might have life? Or would there be a complete misunderstanding, a complete lack of awareness of how those words could have any relation to how you just acted? Would your words have any credence? And part of that is realizing that Coming to Christ is not just agreeing with some mental truths that, yes, I'm a sinner, and uh, Jesus died. Those are good things to believe, but it's also a submission, saying, I'm bending my will to the Lord. I trust that he is Savior and Lord, and I am going to follow him. Perfectly? Never. Are we saved by our following the Lord? Not at all. It's by grace, 100%. But Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. And take up our cross and follow Him. And that affects how we even think of ourselves, and we see that as we go on, because Paul says in verse fifteen that though he's given up his right of payment, that does not then give him the ground to boasting. Well, you know what? I'm not getting paid. Y'all should give me give me a big five. I'm doing this for free. Now, Paul's not boasting about this. Notice why he's not boasting. He goes on because he says in verse sixteen. That necessity is laid upon him. There's a woe, a curse of God if he does not preach the gospel. I don't know all of you in your employment, but imagine your boss says, hey, as I walked in, there's a lot of trash outside. I want you to go outside right now and go pick it up. And you go out, and you're, and you're picking up trash, throwing it in the trash can, and someone else comes up and they go, oh, you're so kind. Come out here and pick up the trash. The truth, what you should tell them is, actually, I'm not kind, I'm grumbling. The boss told me to do it, and that's why I'm out here. I'm not some great servant. I'm merely following orders. And that's what Paul's saying. God specifically called him to preach the gospel. He specifically called him to live a life that made the gospel understandable in words and actions. And thus for Paul to do this is not some great, woo. It's what he's called to do. It's his job. And so that is how he should live. It should not lead him to getting boastful about his actions his reward is that he gets to present the gospel free of charge so he does not use his rights that he could again paul is trying to show in his life and his words this is what the gospel looks like and the irony here in corinth is is this is where they attack him oh well you must not be a real apostle because you gave up your rights when in fact that is a clear indication of his calling in the Lord. Now we have to be clear here. Paul had a unique ministry. All, not all of us are called to preach the gospel in the way that Paul did. We're not all called to travel around, going to various locations. But we all are called to be ambassadors for Christ. We are all called with our words and with our actions to the type of example maybe not the specific way Paul lived it out, but in our lives we are to live the same type of way. That our life is not just about securing my rights, but how can I use my life to serve others? We should be so radical about it that Paul says in verses 19 through 23 that we should be willing to enslave ourselves for the gospel. And Paul then says this, verse 19, he says that, Though he's a free man, he's made himself a slave to all. The verse there might say servant. It's a Greek word that could be translated either way, servant or slave. I think the context is more clearly saying slave. But if you want servant, nonetheless, the same idea is coming across. He's saying, my life is not my own. I'm here to serve, not to be served. And so he gives these statements in verses 20 through 22. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law, but law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. So he's giving all these examples, saying, look, to all these different type of people, I lived in a way that would not be a stumbling block to them. And I think to understand this, we really just could focus on the first, because what does it mean that Paul says, to the Jews I became a Jew? Because he is a Jew. So what what does that mean? Well, I think to understand that, remember what we read earlier, and flip over to Acts chapter 16. So keep your hand in 1 Corinthians 9, and we're going to look at Acts chapter 16, because in Acts 15, what was read for us earlier in the service was the Jerusalem Council where there are Jews who are saying look, yes, you need to trust Christ. You definitely need to do that but you've got to realize that we have this Old Testament law. Which they wouldn't call it Old Testament. We have this law. You need to be circumcised and you need to follow these ceremonial cleansings and you need to eat kosher food and all these things. And the Council is saying no. They are very clear. If you're saying someone needs to do this to be saved, that's wrong. Christ came to transform and fulfill the law. And so there is nothing you need to do to be saved. It is all of grace. And they had this major council in Jerusalem, and then they send out Paul and Barnabas and all these others to tell the churches, "We are saved by grace alone. So you are under no compulsion to obey the Old Testament laws. So it seems very clear. Okay, don't need to obey. But then notice Acts chapter 16, 1 through 3. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well-spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him, because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So wait, Paul was just part of this Jerusalem council that said, circumcision does not matter to be saved, you don't need to do this, and then the very next chapter he goes and he has someone circumcised? I mean, isn't this like a complete contradiction, complete being hypocritical? Well, no, it isn't at all. Rather, it's an application of what Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Notice he didn't have Timothy be circumcised in order for him to be saved. He had Timothy circumcised in order that he could be a witness in the synagogue. Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. And since he had mixed parents, for him to be able to enter the synagogue, he had to be circumcised. Now, if they had demanded... Timothy will not be part of our church if he's not circumcised. I believe Paul would have set up and said, not at all. We just had a whole council on this. He does not need to be circumcised to be saved and be part of a church yet. Since this was merely being done as a cultural thing so he could have acceptance and people would listen to him, Paul acquiesces. He says, let's do this. It's not a big deal. John MacArthur writes on this saying, Paul's circumcision of Timothy had nothing to do with salvation. He did it for expediency's sake, to avoid placing an unnecessary stumbling block in the way of Jewish evangelism. Timothy's circumcision granted him full access to the synagogues he would visit with Paul and Silas. He goes on, from Paul's action, an important principle becomes evident. Christians must be sensitive to the unique characteristics of the culture in which they work. As Paul did in circumcising Timothy, they should avoid giving any unnecessary offense. But like Paul, in refusing to circumcise people for their salvation, they must not compromise any of the timeless truths of Scripture. Thus, to kind of wrap this up and go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is saying, look, I'm a Jew, and if a cultural practice of, that the Jews do is going to help me not be a distraction, then I'm going to do every single one. But that the moment they say to do this Jewish cultural practice has to be done or you cannot be a follower of Christ, we will not let you be part of our church, he will at that moment stop and say, I will stand here and with any other Christian to say, that is wrong. That is heresy. And he has that same mentality. We could apply the same things to those under the law. You will do that. To those Without the law, he'll do that. To those who are weak, and that ties back to chapter 8, those who are weak and think you can't eat meat sacrificed to idols, well, then I'm not going to do that. It's just a cultural practice. I will let it go. In fact, he says, he's become all things to all people in order that he may save some. And then the hopefully well-known verse, verse 23, I do all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Now these verses are challenging, they're inspiring, and they're sadly often misapplied. You know, some have taken this, well look, we need to accommodate, we need to adjust the messages preached so that people will listen to us. And you know, when we talk to our Muslim friends, they kind of find it really offensive that Jesus was God's son, so we don't really need to mention that, and you know, God, Allah, whatever we call him, it's no big deal, let's all just worship God. Well, no, Paul is unwilling to accommodate first-level issues, issues that are essential to the content of the gospel. And we know that because in chapter 1 he said the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews and the Greeks. If he was going to accommodate everyone, he would have said the gospel is a stumbling block, so whatever culture you're in, adjust it a little bit so it's no longer a stumbling block. But the content of the gospel cannot be changed. Others have taken these verses as a license to engage in immoral practices. So to be clear, Paul's not saying to the alcoholics, I become an alcoholic. To the adulterers, I'm going to become an adulterer. Hey, I can witness with more people the more I'm with. Let's share the gospel. That's not what Paul is saying at all. He explicitly says he's still under the law of Christ. He's talking about third-level issues where Christians can agree to disagree and so when we're someone who is offended so strongly we can be willing to go with them. Paul's basically saying we have to think through what we do and believe and make sure we're not allowing our unique cultural expression of the faith change in our mind to being the way you live out the faith. You know, many person has struggled with this. They thought, if I become a Christian, especially if they're in a culture that's not majority Christian, and a missionary comes, like, if I become a Christian, I'm gonna have to become and then they take all the cultural expressions of where that missionary is coming from. There is no distinct Christian culture on many issues. So if you're here today and you like country music, biscuits and gravy, wranglers and tractor pools, then that's wonderful. I probably won't be with you on some of those. If you like hip-hop, hoodies, and athletics, well, then great. You don't need to necessarily change those. If you're like, who likes any of that? I like classical music. I eat small portions of many delectable foods, and you like the arts. Well, wonderful. Following Christ does not necessitate a new style of clothing, a new type of music or food you enjoy. Now, of course, if in any of those you're listening to things that glorify sin, then Christ is going to call you to stop. If in anything you're being immodest or leading people to sin, he's going to call you to stop. However, there's no musical taste outside of the scope of Christ's redemption. We may think this is obvious, but I can distinctly remember, to my shame growing up, and I doubt anyone ever said this, but I mentally came to think a really mature Christian, you're going to laugh, that's right, I'm really foolish at times, a really mature Christian wears khakis and button-up shirts. Oops, wearing that today. No, I did not intend to dress this way. Um, why did I think that? Well, I kind of took my church, how we lived, our expression of the faith. That's what most men wore. That's a solemn, mature Christian, but it's not. You could go to inner cities or country churches where they would look kind of strange if you wore these clothes, and they love the Lord just as much as I do. You know, I had to learn that my way of living out the Christian faith is not the way everyone else does. And yet some Christians don't think that way. If you become Amish, you have to change your clothes. You need to wear the dress that they have. And yet that's not what Christ is calling us to. You know, we so quickly assume that the way something is being used now, if it's being used now evilly, is always evil. To kind of give a historic example, we've been mentioning the Protestant Reformation. We can look back and sadly go, the Protestant Reformers made a major mistake. What was that? Well, they destroyed a lot of art and a lot of beautiful sculptures. Well, why did they do that? Well, we we could say like Francis Schaeffer says, it would have been wonderful at that moment in time if they'd built a warehouse and they'd taken all that stuff and put it in a warehouse and said, 100 years from now, let's pull this back out. But the reality at that time is for hundreds of years, people had been worshiping those pictures. They'd been worshiping those sculptures, and so they said, this picture is sinful, this sculpture is sinful. They took the way it was being used and said it in of itself is wrong. And we have to make these distinctions, and it's not always easy to do. 500 years later, we can say, oh, they made a mistake there. But 500 years from now, people will probably notice many of our mistakes. And this happens on a lot of little things. I really enjoy the ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a very faithful biblical preacher in England, but he said these words. The modern method of installing a bath in each house is not only a tragedy, but has been a real curse to humanity. If I had to spend a lifetime with a companion who had one bath a day, or who had one who had one bath a year, I should unhesitatingly choose the latter, because a man's soul is more important than his skin. When I enter a house, And fine, they have a wireless apparatus, i.e. a radio. I know at once something is wrong. Your sets may do wonders, and they may enable you to hear the voice of America. But believe me, they will never transmit the voice, the only voice that is worth listening to. Now, we all kind of laugh. I mean, that's silly. I mean, I doubt anyone in here would marry someone if they only took one bath a year. In fact... I would bet that some people would even try and make a biblical argument that they don't care about their body. Their body is the image of the Lord. And that's, they would almost say it's sinful. I think some people would take it that far. But we've just gone the other extreme. Now, Lloyd-Jones was getting at a real issue. People care more about their bodies than their soul. And he was right on that, but he tied it to a specific thing. Or he's right. Even today, we can move out radios and put in MP3 players, internet, TV. A lot of people are hearing a lot of voices. They would do better to turn off, but you can also hear great sermons, watch great movies, and other things. And so we have to be very, very careful that we think through our cultural expressions of the faith and be willing to give some of those up, Paul is calling us to, for other cultures. So let's think through some examples. You may think it's the most extreme thing in the world to go in your house, in someone's house, and take off your shoes. They may think you're revolting for not taking off your shoes until you take them off. Nonetheless, that's their culture. Would you be willing to do that? It may be odd to you, but you might offend them if you don't. We've all heard missionaries who have to eat strange foods, but let's say someone comes in our church who is of the exact opposite class of you. They love spam. They love anything out of a can. And they invite you over to their house. And they lay it out. And you might be here thinking, who doesn't love spam? Who doesn't love stuff out of a can? And they serve that to you. Are you going to wrinkle your nose? Are you going to go, I'm not hungry? On the flip side, let's say you get invited to the person who pours you a nice glass of wine. And they give you a serving and you're like, "Uh, is that it? Like, come on, bring the food. Like, why are we giving such small servings? And why would they spend so much time making this? Are you going to look down on them and go, these oh, they're not really Christians. Look how much they spend on food. Even in our church, we need to be willing to not judge one another on little things like the food we eat. As Americans, we have so many freedoms. We can basically live how we want, eat when we want, watch what we want, and Spend our money however we want. And the question is, would you be willing to give up those rights for the gospel? Now, one way I think we can think about this and is a challenge to us is, are we Americans first or citizens of Christ first? Now, I'm not going to dive into what our immigration policy should be in the U.S., but it is amazing the number of people from other countries who now live in the U.S. Before we bought our house here in town, we lived in an apartment complex, and there they had a map of the world, and they had little pins from all the places where people lived in that apartment complex. And I was utterly shocked. Literally every single continent, minus Antarctica, had pins. And not just like one from Africa, not just like one from Asia. Tons and tons of pins from all over the world here in Wichita Falls. And sadly, a lot of Americans, even a lot of American Christians, say these people are ruining our country. If they're going to move here, they need to speak like me. They need to talk like me. I'm not going to learn their language. Now, might there be some good reasons for them to learn English? Yes, I'm not saying that to be a citizen you shouldn't go through all that. But what I'm wanting us to think about is what would Christ call us to think of these people? For years, we've been trying to get into some of these countries to share the gospel And now they've moved, and they live in our city. Could we, for the gospel, say, yeah, if we were to vote, we might vote for policies that aren't letting them in, but they are here, and I'm called to be a witness, so I'm going to learn what type of food they like, and I'm going to learn their language, and I'm going to reach out to them so they can know Christ. Because I am a citizen of God's kingdom before I'm a citizen of the United States states. Yes, we should care about our country. I'm not denying that at all, and I'm not saying what type of immigration policies we should have, but what is our ultimate allegiance? What is our guiding star, as was used earlier, for what matters and what we will do? Part of the problem of this, though, and to wrap this up, is we have a zero-sum mindset. There is this So if I give up my rights, that means you're taking mine. And if I take, if I exert my rights, I'm taking from you. We have this mindset that I have to look out for me and no one else because no one else is going to look out for me. I have to look out for number one and always be exerting my rights. And then we often project that on God. You know, there's other mythologies that think this way. You may be familiar with the story of Zeus and Prometheus from Greek mythology. There, Prometheus went against his heritage. He went against the Titans and helped Zeus and the other Olympiads get control, except then Prometheus started to help the humans. He tricked Zeus into letting them have the meat from the sacrificed idols, sacrifices to the idols, and then Zeus was mad, so he took away the fire from the humans, and then Prometheus got that to the humans as well. So Zeus then chained Prometheus to a cliff, had an eagle come every day and eat out his liver, and then had the liver regrow overnight. A great curse. And the gods then respond to this, and they say, All things are a burden, save to rule over the gods, for none is free but Zeus. And so people think of God this way. They think, look, to serve God, you either basically give up all your dignity and you just bow. I've got to obey. He's the strongest. He's Zeus. Or, I'm rebelling. I'm not going to serve a God like that. I'm Prometheus. You can chain me up. You can do what you want, but I will never serve you. And yet, that's not the gospel. That's not who God is. God didn't say, y'all rejected against me, so you're getting punished forever. God said, y'all rejected me, so I'm going to send my son. We're going to give up our rights as God, and we're going to come and serve you. And we're going to take the punishment that you deserve. And then we're going to give the life of my son for you that you might have freedom, that you might have life. And then he says, won't you go and live that way for others? Won't you be a picture of me to this world so that they might have true life? They may have true freedom, not just for whatever lifespan on earth, but for all eternity. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, it's not just being Americans, but being born as sinners, we want to serve us. We want our rights. Oh, Lord, may we be people of your kingdom. May we be people who desire, long for others to know you, and we'd be willing to do these very hard things of giving up our rights. And yet, Lord, we know it's not in our own strength. It's as we look to your son and see what he did for us that we'll be motivated to live like you.